and had a great stable day job um, to learn the business from. And then along the way, I kind of call it my side hustle. You know, the downturn happened in 2008, 2009, and it felt like real estate was really cheap because it was in hindsight, but nobody had capital, nobody had any money. So was able to cobble together a few dollars and, um, and bought my first deal from a bank. And that led to probably, honestly, 12 or 15 more deals from that same bank that things kind of, you know, kind of snowballed from there. I'm Drew Brenneman, and this is the Rise and Invest podcast. I bought my first two properties as a 19-year-old with my own money that I earned from an online business I started in high school. I've now grown my portfolio from that first duplex to hundreds of millions of dollars of investment property. My goal with this show is to give you the resource I wanted when I first started out. Subscribe to our podcast where I break down real-life stories, tactics, strategies, and current market information you need to be a successful investor. All right, welcome back to another episode of the Rise and Invest podcast. Today's guest is Ryan Callahan. Welcome. Hey, Drew. How you doing? Great. Yeah, so really pumped to bring Ryan on. He's the co-founder and CEO of Artisan Capital Group. Kind of joking before we got started together, you know, not as partners, but just sort of collectively, we own over a billion dollars of property, but it's uh, 200 million me, 800 million Ryan. So I'm happy to, happy to get here and learn something today. Well, the 800, we have a lot of good partners. So Arson Capital Group, why we're the general partner and, and uh, the, the sponsor. We've got some good investors that helped us get to that 800 million mark. So. Yeah. Yeah. So I've got, you know, questions I want to ask Ryan and you kind of hear, um, we've known each other for like 10 years. So hear more, um, yeah. kind of hear how it all started. Yeah, who would have thought 10 years ago, we we're sitting here with uh, you know combined portfolio of a billion dollars. Yeah. No, it was surreal. I mean, maybe I was, I mean, I was probably like 20 million maybe then <laughs> yeah. and, uh, yeah, so no, we yeah. are a bit a bit from that. Um, well, nice. Well, yeah, let's just jump into it. I sure. mean, how'd you get started to start us off for a few? Yeah, that's actually a great question. How I got started in real estate. I, I think the first question is why did I choose real estate or how to get into real estate? And you know, growing up um, and through high school, college, I was always pretty good with numbers. I mean, numbers came natural to me, and I liked um, you know once I got into fi finances courses, I enjoyed those those courses and and learning about that. And numbers were natural. Um, more so than stocks and bonds with real estate, it's more of a tangible asset. I do appreciate good design and I like, um, you know, nice building design and, and the physical, um, you know, facade and, and uh, curb appeal of, of buildings. So for me to combine my, my skill set in, in you know, math and finance with, with real estate as a fixed asset made a lot of logical sense to at least start down real estate as a career path. So um, had an uncle in the business who uh, was a good mentor of mine that kind of taught me a thing or two. And, Really coming out of uh, college, you know, University of Northern Iowa, graduating December of 99, I didn't really know, you know, what I wanted to do or where, but I knew I needed to get out of the state of Iowa where I'm from. And I, I love Iowa and you'll hear we've gone yeah. back to Iowa in a pretty big way. But for me to spread my wings and just kind of, um, I think, um, learn a lot about myself as well as my, my career path, I needed to get out. So I went to Los Angeles for a couple of years and joined HFF as an analyst and a white collar sweatshop, worked probably 100 hours a week type thing for a couple of years, but learned a bunch. Um, really started to put together the big picture of commercial real estate with regards to the asset types, the different food groups from office, industrial, retail, hotel, and obviously multifamily. Um, but more, more than anything, just learned how deals are, are capitalized and structured, the types of capital from debt to equity and, and every nuance in between. And then took the opportunity to go back to graduate school at University of Wisconsin and, and got my MBA there and continued down the real estate path, but really used graduate school for more of um, a gut check, you know, as a you know young twenty-something, to make sure I was going down the right path, and I wanted to use grad school as an opportunity to look at 
take some accounting courses and marketing courses, entrepreneurship courses, just to make sure that, you know, I was on the right path. And one, it helped me kind of round out my education, some other functional areas. But two, it, it did reiterate the fact that I love real estate and I wanted to make it my career. What was so, your undergrad degree in? Finance and economics. So then yeah. yeah, at that point, did you feel like you could have used some more formal education on real estate? Because you've already been working in it long enough. So what you was- You know, in hindsight, you know, did I, did I learn a ton in grad school that I didn't already have a good understanding for? Probably not. But, you know, graduate school is a good way to kind of, you know, one, meet a network uh, of people that are still my friends and colleagues to this day. and. I'm not gonna lie, at 25, I wanted to go back to school and have a little bit more fun. Yeah, so. and two, the reason I wanted to ask that is I think a lot of people who are you know, 24, 25, 26, I was thinking the same thing when I was 26. I had just moved to the city of Chicago and was kind of wondering what what would be like the next step. Mm-hmm. And this it's so, like a lot a lot of people are thinking like an MBA is needed or like a, sure. the next step when they're in their mid 20s in business. So curious how that worked out for you and was it worked out great i mean to me it gave me a, a chance to kind of pause step back um and make sure i was on the right path and then when i landed in chicago in 2003 uh, may or uh, april and may of 2003 really launched my career in earnest and i felt like i was on the right path you great. know and my my first job then was um with ppm america originating mortgages and one of my mentors uh, julian foster um you know him and i teamed up and we originated a lot of good mortgages again on all different asset types but going through that process, it affirmed where I really wanted my career to go. I gravitated towards multifamily. I just liked housing as an asset class. I thought there was um, a lot of long-term stability in the space. Um, But again, having that lending background with uh, PPM um, was very beneficial because it taught me the the nuts and bolts of how to underwrite deals and look at different um, performers and that sort of thing. Um, And actually an an interesting thing, again, you asked how I kind of got where I'm at. Every deal we'd look at the sponsor too, and I remember looking at balance sheets and net worth, personal net uh, statements for a lot of the borrowers, and clearly they had a different net worth than, than I did. Yeah. But I re- it really what it did is it helped me visualize instead of getting you know wealthy by making a lot of current income, I saw how their net worth was generated on the equity side. You know, I, I go back to an accounting class. You got short-term assets, long-term assets, liabilities. And you know the bottom right in my mind of this balance sheet is net worth or owner's equity. And I realized to, you know, to make yourself wealthy, it's not really an income uh, equation. It's how can you buy assets that create value over time. Right. And I learned that by you know, analyzing this, these um, financial statements from a lot of sponsors. And really that gave me kind of, okay, the carrot of that's what I wanna strive to do. That's very so. interesting. What did, did you, did anything cross your mind seeing those sponsors in terms of like, did they have anything special compared to you in your head or you know and, and maybe not just those sponsors but as i've met successful people in my over my life you know a lot of times you meet successful people that are very high acuity really smart you you have you know no doubt how they got to where they're at and i'm not going to disparage anybody but then sometimes you meet su- successful people and it's kind of the opposite you're kind of surprised that you know this person um you know just had the i will say the balls to right. you know, make things happen and and they and that served them well and they succeeded so i can't say that i you know can put my finger on one thing um that identifies success either from a financial statement from you know a smart person or, or somebody else other than doing it you know right. you gotta you can talk about good ideas all you want um but you gotta get yourself in the game yeah and that's why i asked i've noticed the same thing where there's people you'll meet and you'll be like wow they're so much smarter than me like i can't you know almost yeah. can't believe it 
But then for every one of those, there's someone where you're like, wow, if he can do it, I definitely can. That, that's exactly right. So that that's, that's why exactly I asked right. that, where I've uh, I've noticed that too. And then, because I've thought that myself, just doing deals on my own, yeah. where I see people that aren't really any necessarily have any special skills compared to me or, uh, you know, or kind of thought, well, if they're doing it, why can't I? That's right. So that's right. It's interesting. Yeah. Because you saw that as a lender then. Yeah, I did. I did. I saw that as a lender. And, um, you know, what my mindset as a mid 20 something as a lender, if you get your principal back and a little interest, that's a successful deal. Right. And every deal I worked on, I wanted to be on the other side of the table, the person borrowing the capital to take on risk, execute a business plan, and then there they can be rewarded handsomely. Right. So I like that idea of capturing capturing upside. And, um, you know, really got to the point where I, I also understood that I was more of a risk taker and entrepreneur than a lot of other people. Um, and, you know, in general, that served me well in life. Now, you know, you've got to always understand the risk you're taking. Um, you know, I think people that um, are blind to risk, that's when you get yourself into trouble, you know, and I maybe we'll talk about this a little bit later. The first couple of deals I did, you know, I went in, especially in the downturn in Chicago in 2009, 2010, when I didn't have a lot of money. Um, I was pretty leveraged buying assets, but I felt like I was going in with my eyes wide open. And it was definitely a risky proposition that not everybody would have been able to do. But fast forward a few years, values went up, everything paid off. And that's really what got me going to my career, yeah. my ownership career. Yeah. And so you want to pick it up there or talk more? Actually, let's go you're... back because um, I think, you know, how I got started then in real estate, while I was in Chicago, that the first investment property I ever bought was in Cedar Falls, Iowa, the, the college home or the college town that I, I went to school in at Northern Iowa. And I had a very good friend who now works with me and runs asset management, Marcus Chelson, lived in Cedar Falls and was working in the, the, the service industry. Um, and he had local knowledge and, you know, the ability to, to lend sweat equity to project. I had some capital and together we were able to buy some properties. I would front the equity. Um, he would oversee and we would split the profits. Nice. So, you know, we did one and then we did second and I think we got up to seven or eight. And frankly, I, I don't think I even stepped foot in half these properties, yeah, you but I had, that. but I had good eyes and ears on the ground. And that's when you go back to my visual of owner's equity. That's how we started, cre you know, creating equity, both Marcus and myself. I mean, he was doing it from a sweat equity standpoint and putting in the hours and I was kind of running the numbers and could satisfy the lender requirements, and that sort of thing. But that's really how things got started. And then fast forward a few years and you see, you've created some equity value there and um, you know, here in Chicago, I then went from Walt, uh, from um, a PPM and joined Walton Street Capital was uh, building a, a multifamily um, uh, operating company with David Levin called Levin Realty Advisors. So I went to work for David and, you know, really over the next eight years, I was on a plane underwriting markets, underwriting deals and looking at, at assets and had a great stable day job um, to learn the business from. And then along the way, I kind of call it my side hustle. You know, the downturn happened in 2008, 2009. And it felt like real estate was really cheap because it was in hindsight, but nobody had capital, nobody had any money. So was able to cobble together a few dollars and um, and bought my first deal from a bank. And that led to probably, honestly, 12 or 15 more deals from that same bank that things kind of, you know, kind of snowballed from there. Nice. So. Yeah. So then HFF in L.A. got your MBA. That's right. Then PPM, PPM as a lender. Yep. And then um, then you move on the principal side. Principal side, yep. With and that man. yeah, that really kind of got me where I wanted to be, recognizing, again, through my few years of experience, that I wanted to be on the principal side. Um, you know, had great exposure to the Wall Street Capital guys, really smart, taught me a ton. 
really have a lot of respect for them. Um, again, I was kind of David Levin's right hand man as we one built the portfolio, but also built a company, which, right. you know, some of what I, I learned with that experience as kind of the second in command has served me well as I built my own company. Right. I was thinking that as you're saying it, where you wanted to be a principal, then you started doing that on your own, mm -hmm. let's say nights and weekends. And then as you, and then you eventually able to switch your full-time day job to that as well, yep. you know, and then, uh, you know, really learn a ton that way. Yeah, so. no, that's, that's right. I mean, for, it was a great eight years. And, um, again, the, the last four or five years of that, I was kind of working two jobs. But, um, you know, it, it served me well. And, and that when people ask me, when young people ask me for advice, I mean, that's often the first thing I say is don't quit your day job. You know, like your day job will allow you to take some risks and just work twice as hard, you know, and nobody said you need to work 40 hours a week. In fact, if there's one thing I can identify about successful people, they work hard and, you know, 80, 90 hours a week. And I'm not saying you shouldn't find balance in your life because you certainly should, but, um, I've yet to find a, a, a recipe for success other than just outwork the next person. And yeah, and I think it's interesting what you're saying, because I've said the same thing so many times where when I went out on my own, I already had five uh, properties that I owned with a partner, large mm -hmm. ones, and mm -hmm. then two on my own. And, uh, you know, so then I already had seven deals paying me. Yeah. And then I went out. Yeah. Where it would have been. So I, to your point, I kept my J job. Yep. You know, and I was buying deals on my own for years. And then eventually it got to the point where like I, this is day, this, you know, just buying stuff in the evenings, yep. weekends is turned into a full-time thing now. Yep. And then that's when I did it, but exactly. And so what's interesting to think like during all that time, I basically stopped watching movies and sports nearly. And, yep. um, you know, it's not much has changed, you know, now I'm older. So my free time pivoted to like my kid basically, yep, but sure. I, I didn't, I never even went back to doing that stuff now, instead of watching yeah. like college football, I just, you got to prioritize your time. And I think a lot of, and I've been guilty of this, a lot of successful people, um, their first priority it probably is their job or their business. And I don't know that that should be number one, obviously your, your family, your friends, your loved ones, um, should fall ahead of your profession. And I've probably had to, um, resort my priorities over the years, which I, I'm working on, but, but, you know, again, when I'm in my mid twenties and, and early 30, late twenties, early, uh, thirties. You know, I it probably avoided helped me avoid some bad habits as well. You know, staying out too late at night and and that sort of thing. So yeah, you know, you just gotta you just gotta lean in and work hard and make things happen. And actually, might be a good dovetail. Um, you know, after eight years with Walton Street, you know, when I did make that jump out on my own, um, you know, I felt like I was at a crossroads in my career of either wanting to needing to double down, recommit to working kind of the private equity institutional model and you know work my way up the ladder at a at, at a private equity firm and, and i'd say fight but you know kind of earn more equity and deals and that sort of thing what age what age and what year is this i was um so this was 2012 um so i was uh, 35 you know okay. it's about 10 years ago right now is when we had closed a big deal in nashville uh kind of coming out of the downturn um very good buy and, you know, as an acquisition guy, I had a little piece of the deal and a little piece of the back end, um, but I wanted to get that deal closed. And I knew I wanted to go into 2013 with kind of my own, my own um, plans and my own ideas. And really what doing the small deals along the way, because I did start you know, raising some friends and family capital, it gave me confidence to see an, see an idea or have an idea, see an opportunity and ex execute. Right. And then, you know, slowly start doing that on larger scale. And, um, you know, I could have stayed with, you know, the more of the institutional route and worked my way up. But, you know, 
I recognize a little bit of there's the tendency for groupthink, you know, 20 smart people sitting around a conference room where everybody thinks they might be a little smarter than the next guy and you just kind of talk and nothing really happens. And at the end of the day, you know, usually right decisions are made that way. But I think I was a little bit more impatient and I just wanted to rock and roll. And you know, a lot of my you know, instincts were for scrappier, small deals that I could cobble together. You need to move quick. And um, at the end of the day, I just felt that the time was right for me to make a move, go out on my own and, and scratch that entrepreneurial itch. And I, whether this is the right mindset or not, I always kind of felt if I failed, you know, if I worked hard for a couple of years and I failed, well, I could always go back and work my work my way back in the rotation. I always say know? that. I always say uh, right. that where, right, you could have just gone back to Levin right. or another similar place with all your experience. Yeah, I I think I was employable. <laughs> no, you, <laughs> you know? for sure were. I always, right. I always say that where like the worst case isn't you're going to be, I mean, like homeless or something like right. we have all you have the degrees and yeah. the experience. You just could go get another job. Sure. That's exa that's exactly right. And I tell you what, October 1st of 2012, that first whenever first Monday after I, I left, I've never been more motivated than that day I woke up and I didn't have to go. to I didn't go to my job and it's, it's all on you. Right. You know? So it's like so talk about working hard. That's when I almost like tripled down to make sure that I wasn't you know going to be a failure. Makes so, a lot of sense. It, you know, fear can be, and it was scary, but I also say this, fear can be a, a huge motivator if you let it, you know? And for me, it, you know, that little element of, of fear when you knew you didn't have a paycheck coming in every two weeks uh, really helped accelerate my my drive and my motivation and, and my, my work ethic. Yeah, and there's, and a lot of these things you're saying are the same things I've mentioned with getting something going. Mm -hmm. Like first, you don't need to, your day job really does help a lot with experience and paying the bills. Sure. Because even these deals, you could do well on a deal, but then if you have to use all that money to, you know, to pay your own bills, you're not really compounding anything yet. That's right. You're spending it where, yeah, if you can stay in your job longer, that's that's great. And then same thing on the, just going back to your job, I always say that. Yeah. And that's that's like a, a big takeaway to me. So it's interesting that you've seen a lot of the same stuff I have. That's right. What then? What do you when you then when you went out on your own in said October first, twenty twelve? It was end of September, thereabouts. Okay. Yeah, this is interesting to remember the exact date. Well, that's, you remember pivotal moments in your life, right? Yeah, so. yeah, because I can remember roughly when I had to quit too, or it was in like July twenty eleven. You know, where okay. it's like sure. a yeah. memorable yeah. time. I yeah. just, um, so yeah, what then? What did you have at that point going? Where you had some deals in Iowa, some in Chicago. Not, we hadn't really done the Iowa thing yet. We bought some of the college houses that we still had, but I really look at 2010, 11, 12 is when I, you know, went long and you know the the cycle was such that in 2008 the 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 value drop in eight and nine was substantial, um, and I just focused in my backyard. I always felt like. I knew what a two bedroom, you know, walk up would rent for in Lincoln Park or Wrigleyville or Bucktown or Wicker Park. So I, I just focused on my backyard. And it was one of those environments that, you know, doesn't come around often in your career that you, there was real blood in the water. And if you showed up and a lot of times I didn't have the money necessarily for for down payments or even to show proof of funds, but you just kind of figure out creative ways to, to make that work. Um, I just focused in my backyard and then um, in hindsight, the opportunities didn't really dry up, but I felt like by 13, 14, the, the buying opportunities, the, the real distress opportunities had, had dried up. And I just say, but cap rates were, you know, you used to be able to buy like, you know, nine, 10 caps, right? right. And then they were like six or seven. I'm like, oh, that feels pretty pricey. So that's when I took a step back and really analyzed a couple of different things. I analyzed capital flows nationally for multifamily. And by then Nashville and Austin were popping. East Coast, you know, the coasts were 
were very you know very strong but the, in the sun belt as well but you know the big hole that i know well the upper midwest i just felt like was being overlooked by not only institutional investors but private investors and whatnot so i'm completely biased here because i'm from a small town in iowa and i love being from iowa and i always felt that des moines was a little hidden gem of a market that nobody was paying attention to so in 2013 2014 I really started studying Iowa as a case study of a market below a million people that had a very diversified local economy that had um, you know population growth, educated workforce, quality of life, a cool factor. Right. And um, I always said if it was more than a million people, you know, the institutions would would be keen to that market, but they weren't. So I just felt I used the money ball strategy. I felt like Des Moines, Iowa was that you know, that athlete that was maybe short and tubby, but could always hit and get on base. Like it was just being overlooked by right. the other guys. They were looking at the wrong things when evaluating markets. So if you're truly looking as an investor, you you know, I think the term risk-adjusted return is way overused and misused in a lot of cases. But my, my view at that time was there's markets like Des Moines that are um, not evaluated properly and that they're... Um, they're trading at a you know a, a premium really to what market value or, or a discount to what market value truly should be if you're analyzing the risk the true risk of that deal and smaller markets the argument is you know five seven ten years who are you going to sell to and I always hedge that uh, response with well if we have a longer term hold I don't care if I'm locking into a great yield if we as an investment partnership have a longer term horizon and I'm d distributing a, a cash yield that's much higher than you can get anywhere else. And we feel that the stability of the income and your NOI is better than other places. To me, that's where you should park some dough. Right. So that was kind of the origin of, of the, the strategy, which then became Artisan Capital Group. But um, I do need to mention, after I went out on my own, I put you know all my net worth on the table, borrowed or not borrowed, raised some outside capital, and put together a nice portfolio. But I felt like I was in a defensive situation just from a income standpoint you know if, if something happened if a property needed a, a large capital infusion literally i think i emptied my bank accounts and bought these assets so i i was uh, approached by a group and i did go back into the kind of the working world for a bit in 13 and 14 15 um, a mortgage originator out of um, minneapolis oak grove capital uh, kind of reached out and allowed me to join them in a couple manners i helped the principals analyze investment um, strategies on, on their own account but also originated some mortgages for Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac. So I used it. I kind of went back into that defensive mode of having a little bit of a paycheck while I was still able to go out and and execute my my own business. Yeah, yeah, interesting. Makes sense where you had all your money, you know, invested, and then well, I just felt like you know I was I was certainly exposed, you know, and and you know I was covering all my bills and everything was fine, but um, I didn't have a whole lot socked away. Let's put it that way. Right. Or if you find another deal, it's starting to maybe you felt like well, my investment base is getting like a little. It's sort of like fully invested. What's my next move? Right, right. It's interesting. And is I've heard, you know, um, yeah, I've heard several smart people say, you know, you make a lot of money when you have access to capital in a down market, right? And even though things were improving, if things had had another downturn or whatever, I didn't have any capital to take advantage of, you know, the next downturn. Right, and even by like 2015, it felt like the prices were high. That's what's in hindsight, wild. sure, but things have run another seven years since then, right? Right, but what you know isn't this supposed to be like a seven-year economic <laughs> or real estate cycle? You know, so. all I know is real estate cyclical. I'm not going to call the next cycle, but it feels like things are fully priced right now. R right, or even but even in 2015, it was like it was you. I was thinking that where I was buying deals, and then well, that's when yeah. I pivoted and started again, pivoted away from Chicago, 
and went into this whole new strategy or thesis of, of secondary tertiary markets. Because if you looked at multifamily cap rates between primary, secondary, and tertiary, not only the difference between the Sun Belt and the Midwest, which was a huge delta in cap rate, but then you know Chicago to Minneapolis, Minneapolis, Kansas City, Kansas City to Des Moines, you, there's probably a 50 basis point premium cap rate every step down you went. And my view is in Des Moines, if you could buy a seven cap and that asset's trading for five in Chicago, that was a good relative trade to start buying Des Moines. So that was the pivot I made in 15. When it felt expensive here, that's when we, we started really buying the assets that were rolled in to start artisan capital group and that makes all that thesis made it always made a lot of sense to me when i first heard about it or even a lot of the fundamentals in like des moines better than chicago yet it's trading at a discount relative to the income it was and now you know things change right last deal we bid on and chased really hard in, in suburban uh des moines there was 35 offers most from california and new york so that tells me that i'm not saying i was smart or lucky but we were right on the thesis seven years ago and now what's the next one so as a as an investment company that's what we always try to do is find the edge or a little bit of um you know a strategy that maybe the the bulk of people are missing you know real estate you know i hate to say it it's it's a herd mentality and um we try to look the other way if, if everybody's going one direction okay let's look the other direction and what what are people missing and maybe maybe they're not missing anything or maybe they're running from something for a reason but maybe there's opportunity in the other direction. Right, and what's interesting too, if you have that business plan that's it's, it's different to it's to me, it seems like it's even, it's easier to raise money. I know it at first, if you're the first whatever deal in Iowa for yeah. that group, it's, I'm sure it wasn't easy, but. No, it wasn't, yeah. What's interesting is once you have that sort of really going though, I feel like now, hey, you have a unique idea that's working and you're coming to them where that, you know, one of the best example I have of that, obviously Harrison Street here where they, mm -hmm you know, right after the recession roll out with a, we're going to focus on these recession resistant asset classes. Mm -hmm. You pitch all these institutional investors that are in the normal food groups, office, industrial, multifamily, yeah. et cetera. This is like something new. Yeah. And you, and it's a, it's a great offering in terms of, you know, um, in a way, I mean, it's more than this, but, you know, putting your money in something else and sounding, sounding smart. And, you know, so I, I, that really resonated and they've killed it Yeah, doing that, obviously. One thing yeah. I was going to almost joke about, it's interesting because I talked to, let's say people that are newer in the business, Yeah, they've, they've never seen like where the cap rates were different. Like, so I joke, like when I started, you'd go on a webinar with, let's say Marcus and Millichap or C. Sure. Barry, and they would have a matrix of the cap rates yeah. doing what you're talking about. Chicago downtown is a mm -hmm. six cap, but the third ring out suburb, you know, Aurora, yeah. it's an eight cap. Yeah. And then you go to Iowa, same same thing, and it starts at an eight and then goes yeah. up. And then they're just used to like, oh no, aren't they? Like, they should all basically be the same, right? And it's different risk thresholds, different. Yeah. But it's interesting now to see because then, I mean, you guys were uh, definitely got in front of what turned out to be a big trend with people moving into tertiary markets. Yeah, and I mean, some of that was maybe propelled by the pandemic, but I also th think the the thought process was right and. If we went in and made the trade, so to speak, we wanted to, you know, establish scale, and and we were able to do that from 2000, you know, really 15, 16 to, um, you know, 19 uh, into the pandemic year of 2020, and had a good critical mass. And we went from, we started the company. I, I rolled in a thousand units that I bought as a GP, and you know, Arson Capital Group started the end of 2017. We then bought, you know, basically a thousand units a year for a couple of years. Um, 
and had you know critical mass. And we did that for a couple of reasons. One, because we wanted to drive operational efficiencies for our strategy and and really be known as you know if not the best, one of the best owner operators in the Upper Midwest and a, a company with strong kind of institutional backgrounds and experience that are applied to a very specific strategy in, in a newer market. So it was you know fa- fairly well thought out in, in that way. One thing to jump in on, if you, so then you roll in a thousand units, those were acquired while you were working at Oak Grove, right? Uh, yeah, Oak Grove sold the JLL. And that's another, I guess, kind of anecdote that I, I joke about, but I'd made the decision I wanted to be more entrepreneur, entrepreneurial in my career. And Oak Grove was entrepreneurial, but then they sold the JLL which is a great company. We work with JLL every day, but JLL is one of the biggest real estate companies right. in the world. And that's not the direction I wanted my career to go. I wanted to go more entrepreneurial. But also, you I know? just wanted to highlight the working hard element because now yeah. you had said you well, were maybe around 35 when you started buying again in Chicago. And this is now almost four years later. So you're almost 40 and you're still, you're more or less still working two jobs. That's what I wanted to point out where you yeah. bought, you on the side bought a thousand units. I've never, yeah, I don't know if that. I'd advise that. Yeah. That I was, I was, Fully transparent with with JLL and and um, in fact they were very supportive to you know my future plans and I think it was a good win win because I I certainly um, you know helped the the JLL team as they were uh, expanding their multifamily practice and outreach but um, yeah I I didn't see another way to do it I you know um, right it, yeah it's if you start with at zero then all this time where you're buying the first ones that's just money coming out of your pocket. Yeah on your own money, your own living costs and running the company if you have any employees yep. or overhead. Yep. But I, I just want to point that out because if you would just sort of casually look and go, oh, wow, 800 million of property must be nice. But it's like, yeah, the first 80 million was already bought when we started the company. But and more yeah. of the point is there was 20 years where you basically worked two jobs. Um, from I guess I've 20, never thought of it that age way. Age 20 yeah. to 40, pretty much. Yeah, I guess I've never thought of it that way. But yeah. That's, that's and, then, I mean. and then you, a couple one time you went out and then you got all your money invested and then you went and you went back to yeah. they'll just call it a job even though it's it's lending it's more of a eat what you kill type deal but yeah you know where you make another pivot where you got to have a you made a had to make a lot of pivots and and work really hard to get even artisan started is my point absolutely absolutely i mean my career is not a straight i don't think anybody's career is really a straight line maybe some people's are but mine was not a straight line it was uh, once I kind of yeah, had some experience underneath me and realized that you know housing was where I wanted to spend my career, I kind of had a vague vision of what we could do. And when I say we, because I, I knew whatever I'm envisioning was going to take you know a team, a right. village to get it done. And but I knew what we could probably accomplish. Um, but sometimes you you know you got to take a step sideways. Sometimes you even have to take a step back, but you still need to know where where you're going, and you got to pivot. And you know whether it was going back to work with Oak Grove and JLL or whatnot. I knew what my end game. I knew what I wanted my end game to be. You just had to you know work to get there. Right. So, but just to highlight that, because then even now when you said that we rolled in a thousand units, I was like, wait, that's all still done while you're doing something else. Yeah. No, the that's other great. units were in Chicago. So yeah, that's that's a great point. Yeah, that's that's, that's a great point. And I, I want to say too. Um, you know, those assets I was able to buy really in 2016 to roll into Artisan, you know, that was that came from a capital relationship that when I was still buying the small deals, doing friends and family, you know, I, and I wasn't very good necessarily. I put myself out there while I had conviction in the assets we were buying, the plans. I'd never really had to raise outside capital before. And, you know, a little luck, but also a lot of hard work and networking, you know, met um, an individual and um, a, really an equity source that had some um, some capacity behind them. 
that one believed in a guy without a business plan or without a business card or a company to buy these assets. And I really give them a lot of credit and whether, again, probably a little luck to, to find that capital relationship that allowed me to, to get those seed assets. And that was but, an individual? Um, that was the it was individual behind a, a large company and, and you know, became more than just the individual, but um, there was a nice equity source uh, that helped get me started. Yeah, because then that eventually grew though, where he knew other people, then that's right. either they came in the deal with him right, or right. introduced And they're still a great relationship. They, they help us with some co-investment opportunities from time to time. and you know, want to do a lot more with them. But I will say, I want to give that, you know, them credit because it, it really helped me get started. Yeah. And too, and it's interesting how things like that snowball where you have them come in on one deal and you're not sure what's going to be the next thing. And then you find another deal and then he pulls into whatever coworkers or his neighbor, Yeah, you know, and then all of a sudden it's interesting how that actually plays out. So it's funny how things can uh, spiral like that. Yeah. So then let's, I think it'd be real interesting to hear about Artisan today. Sure. You know, so then what, uh, so we have the strategy laid out, you know, where it's class B multifamily in Iowa initially. That was initially, yeah. You, what, why don't you run me through what you guys are doing today? Yeah, absolutely. Well, um, one, we're up to 12 people. I mean, the biggest thing I'm, I, I take the most pride in is the team we've been able to put together. Um, when it was time to start a company, I didn't want to do it by myself. Um, I lobbied, uh, a gentleman I used to work with, Mike Perry, to help me as my my co-founder. And Mike's good at a lot of things that I'm not good at. You know, I think I'm good at, you know, capitalizing a deal and finding investment opportunities and and networking with investors and and the kind of the front end to get a deal closed. You know, operations, investor relations, asset management, project oversight. That's where success has had. And Mike was uh, that he was my asset manager when I was at the Walton Levin entity and. He, I always said, I need somebody like Mike Perry. I need somebody like Mike Perry. And finally, I just, you know, begged Mike Perry to join me. And after the fourth time, he, he finally said yes. And uh, uh, we were off to the races. So it was the two of us working in a, a co-working space um, in the loop. Uh, my goal at the time was thinking, okay, five years forward, which would be basically this year or next year, I thought we'd get, I hoped that we'd get to three or 4,000 units and have like a half a dozen employees. Well, you know, things started snowballing. We're now at 12 people and just shy of 6,000 units, but I think we can scale with the team we have. But beyond Mike, um, first couple acquisition guys that joined me, Witt and Ebley and Greg Marks. Uh, Witt focuses on market rate, Greg is student housing, but you know, really smart guys that were able to come in, kind of see the vision of what Artisan could be and allow them to be entrepreneurial um, in how they work and operate and go find good deals. Uh, Sean Fogarty, a uh, good friend and colleague, joined as a partner in 2019. Uh, brought on in-house counsel, somewhat recently, Tiffany Harper from um, formerly with Magellan Development. Uh, Marcus Chelson, who I mentioned earlier, who is my you know, lifelong friend and uh, original business partner back in Cedar Falls. Um, you know, wanted a career change, uh, so to speak, and, and joined as you know, boots on the ground in Iowa overseeing at, you know, asset management. And he's elevated to run all of our asset management at this point. So um, we got a couple of young guys, uh, Dan and Ian, who help you know, grind numbers and help on asset management, which has been fantastic. Allie Zerbel oversees all of our projects, uh, whether it's big or small. She's uh, our utility uh, knife, so to speak. Um, who am I missing? Uh, Greg, uh, um, Jake Gantz just joined us as an asset manager as well. And uh, I think that gets us to 12. Yeah, just really pr proud of the team that we've we've put together here. And um, um, yeah, I'm sure it's interesting. You're spending all your time now really building the platform and you know running running the thing where, and I'm experiencing a similar thing. I don't have 12 people, but you know, 
four that work for me and full time that work on the deal doing. And it's interesting where it's been, you know, a while since I underwrote my own deal. You know, that's one thing, you know, people always ask me with like the biggest challenge of, of growing a company is and, you know, you don't really think of it when you start the company, but you got to get people, you get the right people in their places. And there's just so much to do on a, on a daily basis. So we've got good people that are kind of executing and whatnot. Um, I try to be somewhat cognizant of, of tuning into how people, you know, are, are motivated and, and try to, you know, periodically touch base with everybody just to make sure that we're on the right track and that they're, you know, getting, um, what they want out of the job and that it's, you know, fulfilling for them. Um, not something I thought about in October of, you know, 2017 when we started the company, but a critical piece of the component. So, uh, that doesn't necessarily come natural to me, but I recognize that I want to create a good environment for people to, to work and to have, you know, a lot of uh, satisfaction in their job and not easy to do when you're growing so fast and you've got a lot of people working very hard, but, um, you know, it's something I'm, I'm, I'm focused on and trying to make sure, you know, people are, are, um, are, you know, are in the right spot, so to speak. Yeah. You know, the other thing is, is what our strategy is. I mean, I just mentioned, you know, the original strategy was going to Iowa and I feel like that's kind of played out for now. So it's what's next. And we took a step back, um, certainly in COVID and analyzed a few different things. We think suburban Chicago is a great place to buy right now. Um, not a lot of people are, uh, are, are looking in Chicago. Um, and it's the third largest city in the United States. And while we've got fiscal headwinds and real estate tax challenges on how you underwrite those and, and whatnot, uh, certainly some headline risk, um, but we think Chicago's a pretty good you know, contrarian play right now, and it's in our backyard. So we like that. And then student housing, we feel like is trading a little wonky right now from a national standpoint. Um, Pre-pandemic, there were student housing assets that were trading basically in par on a cap rate basis with, with uh, apartments. And we don't think that should be the case. There should be a little, you know, premium there, 25, 50 basis points. But in a lot of cases, we're seeing 100 basis points spread between student and apartments. And we just think that's a little bit of the edge that we were talking about earlier right. that we're trying to capitalize on right now. So. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Had a rough year with the COVID and, you know, people trying to break leases. So then that disrupts the whole that's market. That's scary. That, that, you know, that veers on uh, that, that um, makes things uncertain. And um, whenever there's uncertainty, you know. Opportunity. There can be opportunity, right? Right. So that's what we tried to try to exploit and focus on. Yeah, because the other day someone was asking me, "What's the? Why does someone even want to invest in student housing?" Just because obviously there's just more management headaches and uh, we'll just say repairs needed, which is why there should be that that spread, right? I mean, it's not it's not an apartment deal. There's a, it's a different asset type. It's a different you know capital, um, you know at, you know intensive asset. But actually, on the flip side, I would say there might not even need to be a spread depending where I could make the case there shouldn't be. It's just different where yeah. the rents uh, you're going to. Yeah, you have more headaches, but that's our in repairs. But that's already factored in. It should be in your, your expenses. So right. that's you're just we're just putting the cap rate on the NOI now, which already has that baked in. And you could say the rents are high for what it is, but that's already again still yeah. factored in the price. But the real like thing that's great with student housing and I had four student housing assets and owned two or three of them still during the uh, 2008, nine downturn, my rents never dropped. Every year they went up, even 2008, yeah. nine, 10. There's no recession. These are at UW-Madison and mm -hmm. UW-Madison, let's say class B minus yeah. like student rentals, which is what I had. Sure. So then to me, that's, so that's what I told them where I was like, the the reason people go in that is it's, it's just not correlated with the economy necessarily. It's correlated with how the school's doing, almost how yeah. colleges are gonna do.
Well, and the interesting thing about students, sometimes when the economy is bad, universities do better because more people are going back to, to school. Right. So so I feel like the risk almost in student housing is more making sure you're going to be at a college that's still growing yeah. and and not because I, I will say with student student housing, like some of these colleges where they're you know at risk for going under if it's like a bottom rung school yeah. and this is getting so expensive to go to college now where people are going to realize a couple things there we absolutely focus on enrollment trends right i mean you look at freshman enrollment hoping that that's painting a good picture that freshman enrollment's up that they're going to be there for three years and and a nice trend from there i hate to say it but you know we agree some of the directional schools and i went to northern iowa um you know are probably going to be in trouble i think some states need to figure out how to keep those schools how to market those schools better or create some sort of um competitive advantage for those schools probably you know cheaper tuition for Is, was that private or public northern iowa yeah it was public yeah it was the third public school in iowa yeah but even for that at least cost wise it still makes sense the ones where i'm i'm sure there was something comparable sure where yeah. and i know the ones in like the milwaukee area because that's where i'm from and yep. where it's 40 50 grand a year to go to now and it's you know i don't know the 15th best college in the state yeah. you know where it's like at what point is it not worth spending 200 grand a right and those are year? you know and again maybe you know there's some opportunity there if you're willing to take a risk but we're not going to make that bet we're pre-pandemic we had a different strategy we were looking at kind of secondary universities now we feel you know we want to look at the power five conferences top tier universities focused on schools with good enrollment trends but student housing supply can change in the market pretty quickly and we see some some uh, markets that have, you know the supply pipeline has just has just crushed the market because you know the right. demand is somewhat fixed if you will and and you can only absorb so much supply but you know you, you analyze all those things which is why on the students front we have more of a national approach because there's just not as many markets um that you know we're going to try to enter um but it's been a good market for us or a good a good strategy for us and we're pretty optimistic about our prospects there download our 100 plus page passive investing guidebook today at rise invest dot com slash downloads accredited investors can sign up for our multifamily investment opportunities by hitting the invest now button on our website now back to the show how are you how are you sourcing deals today that's a great question um maybe i'll start with how i used we historically have sourced deals and when we, we got started really in 15 and 16 spe specifically in iowa i saw inefficiencies in how assets were sold in the state of iowa that i wanted to exploit right a lot of mom and pop ownerships, a lot of off market transactions, a lot of you know street brokers or or kind of the you know uh, the 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 bird dog brokers would bring me deals direct, and I love that inefficiency, yeah. right? I think the the goal is you buy inefficient, and then after we're, when we're ready to sell, you hire the best broker for the job, and you make sure a hundred people see it, and you you know really you know market the heck out of your sale. But I like the inefficiency of buying deals, so. And I, I went down the list of our um, our REO, our real estate owned, our real estate owned. I bet you we bought half off market or quasi half market. And you know it's getting harder and harder to do one to find those opportunities, and especially in a hot market right now, everybody knows that you know you put it out there, there's going to be probably a bidding war. So historically, it's been more inefficient ways of, of sourcing assets. One I'll, one question to jump in. That's I would. And we've done something similar. We when we redid our website, I counted up how many deals were like a repeat broker, mm -hmm. fully off market or repeat seller. Mm -hmm. So I don't have the breakout of just yeah. full off market, but it was eighty percent of the properties I bought were there one go. or all of those three things. And but most of them really were through a broker. Still, it wasn't. I've I've only bought a couple properties where it was like I like one of them. I literally called my the neighbor property yeah, and sure. he sold to me eventually. 
but even on that, he eventually hired a broker actually. Yeah. Because okay. he didn't yeah. know what it was worth. And then they were going to put it up for sale. And then that broker contacted us. Sure. But any, anyways, um, what, what have you done where, and this is something where I, I have actually, I have, let's say if I bought 40 properties, I've sold less than 10 of them. So mm-hmm. I have, normally I'm selling with the broker I bought with. Yep. But in these, let's say, say I'm in the same boat as you, some of these situations where it's like a, the person is not in their wheelhouse really, yeah. and they, but they did bring us the deal. Yeah. And usually you want to list with who brought you the deal. Yeah. How do you manage that? What do you, you know, we're selling our first round of assets right now. Um, and in some cases we've had, we've chosen brokers that didn't necessarily bring us the deal. We view it as we're going to, you know, we're in this for the long haul and, you know, brokers that, that, that bring us deals, we execute, we buy, and that's a successful transaction for them. And there's really no guarantee about the sale. We're going to evaluate the sale process based on what's best for our investors and the asset and ultimately, you know, us as sponsors. And if it happens to be the same broker, great. Um, but if it doesn't, we feel there's a better broker to market and sell the deal. We're going to hire the best athlete for the job. Right. You know, it's, this is a, we're, we're all, you know, big boys in this game, big boys and big girls. Um, you know, you've got to bring your A game every day. And if you're not the right one to sell a deal, we're going to hire somebody else. But I also think that that's, that shouldn't prevent people from, you know, continuing to show us opportunities because we're very fair on the buy side too. And we, we do our best. We pride ourselves on, on trying to execute and doing, doing what we say we're going to do. Right. And that's something where I haven't, I, I will, I, I think on all the ones where I've sold, it's been with a, a broker where it made sense to go with, uh, yeah. that also sold it to us, I think, but a couple of them we didn't, we used somebody else we thought was better, but it's, it was honestly, it's honestly, it's a tough conversation with the broker sure. that, you know, brought you the deal because they, a lot of them are working under the assumption, like if I brought you the deal, I should list it. Not based on it necessarily mm-hmm. what their abilities are at that point, just sort of, that's like mm-hmm. a courtesy. I get it. And we would certainly give that broker the opportunity to, you know, evaluate the deal, give us their marketing proposal, their value and, you know, who, who, and they're thinking they're going to sell it to, you know, their potential investor list. And, um, you know, I also think it's a little bit of an old school mentality that, you know, just cause you brought it, you're going to sell it. You know, I think you got to bring your best every day. And if you're not the, you know, it's a tough conversation, but don't yeah. be afraid of having a tough conversation. If you really think that there's a better broker, here's why, you know, and right. you know, have that conversation right because that's yeah that's something that i've ran into but i know a lot of other people are thinking about because i just i sold three deals last year and mm-hmm. and two of them we used a new broker well, we, we we're, we're very cognizant too of look we've got a lot of really good relationships on the broker side and at some point you got to spread it around a little bit you know make sure that you know everybody gets a deal that you know at least groups that you think you're going to transact with you know this, this is a four and a half year old company we're going to be in business for a long time so we want to make sure that we we have you know multiple good relationships on that front right are you guys managing your own properties or what great question? Guys? Great question. So when we started the company, that was one thing I always got asked. I mean, if we are fully uh, vertically integrated and have our own management company and, you know, I'm in a co-working space with two or three other people. I'm like, that's the extent of our company. Like, this is all I can think about right now, let alone yeah. hiring a maintenance guy on a 400 unit property in Iowa. So we evolved over time. And frankly, we probably made the move to create our management company sooner than I ever would have expected. But in 2019, we'd, tried some third-party managers that just weren't managing the way we would manage. And with our institutional backgrounds, we're very hands-on asset managers. And it was pointed out to me once that the way we asset manage, we were already doing half the management. Yeah. So that was kind of like a light bulb situation. I mean, it was like, okay, that's that's a really good point. I've realized that in some of our deals right. too, where I and, feel like, except for the hiring, we're basically doing this yeah. too. We're, we're setting the rents, we're 
reminding you of this thing's not on the you said it's on the market it's actually not when yeah. you go on the internet so it's you we need you need to step it up where pretty soon it would just it would have been the same amount of time to yep just yep. say that to the person sitting across from yep. you like hey your listing is not showing up yeah so for me i think it was kind of a mental barrier of like maybe being intimidated by the concept of having a management company and employing i mean if you own a 400 unit property that's probably eight employees right there um, which to me you know seemed like a thankless not a thankless because you want good people at your property but I never really wanted to be in the HR business, right? That's not my cup of tea. But what we did is we partnered with Tina Smothers, a great gal in the state of Iowa who has really a strong, deep uh, experience in property management and had started her own management company. And we were able to bring our scale of a portfolio to Tina and, and let her uh, run the management company. We're partners in the management company, have a lot of input. Um, but you know, she's been able to scale a great, uh, great company, probably self-manage. I should know the exact number, but. 3,500 to 4,000 units within our portfolio. Um, we self-manage um, and we'll probably grow. I mean, originally started with uh, the state of Iowa. Now we're uh, taking over management of our 800 units in Kansas City and Lawrence. Excellent. And we'll see from there. But I still think using third-party management in markets like Chicago makes a ton of sense. Um, you gotta be good at what you're, what you're good at and recognize what you're not good at. And you know, we're good and well-known in the state of Iowa. I think we can attract good talent. Um, and you know have the right people at our properties but chicago's a different game and student housing is a different game you know um we just bought a deal in reno nevada for us to self-manage in reno nevada and track the right property manager and, and maintenance supervisor that's a taller task from three two thousand miles away right or so, learning the other thing too people don't think about and it's obvious once you get in a few markets you also got to learn all the laws in that market sure which you figured out in iowa over time and you know chicago i'm sure but then you buy your first deal at reno What's the lease supposed to look like there? Right. And, you know, you have the right have the right licenses in place. Right. And all those things. So and really. So, yeah, you brought that in house. But it was also not only once you have the scale units, you know, you, the right unit count, let's say, but the right sort of other people at, let's say, the corporate level who could who could do that. Right. And Tina brought on um, Josh and Kelsey and uh, Devin. We've got a really good uh, team of you know, really leadership, senior leadership um, within the company to help, you know, provide the support to the properties that, that we really need. And that doesn't happen overnight. And, you know, frankly, three years ago, I, I thought that was gonna be very difficult to attain. And another thing I take a lot of pride of that we're able to attract really good people to join the company. So, but the other thing that led to us bringing management in-house in hindsight is, you know, you can put your pro forma together and you have good, you know, good basis for your assumptions and your OPEX and certain things. and. You know, if you hire a third-party manager and they're not thinking of of your budget the way an owner does they're thinking of it you know a lot of times what's the path of least resistance you know replace versus repair on some some mm -hmm. items or that sort of thing and um we realize we can only pass the buck so long to our investors right by saying you know the manager missed it property management missed it here they're running heavy and at some point you got to grab the the wheel and control your own destiny and that's ultimately what we end up doing we made a management change that didn't pan out, uh, brought in a more of a national into Iowa and weren't able to get them to see operations the way a true local owner operator would and should. So we we made the decision to to take over and it's been a lot of work, but um, it was the right move. And then your your part your partner's name is Sean and what's the other? Mike? Sean Fogarty, Mike Perry Mike. are my two um, partners in Arson Capital Group. But then Mike, so he initially was he he sort of ran point on even bringing in Tina and all that, or 
Yeah. Well, Tina was a relationship that that I've, I'd had for a long time. I bought a, a 14 unit deal in Tina, and she was the property manager on that. Um, but you know, I, Mike was is is kind of the glue. I mean, everything operations. You know, Mike um, has his his fingerprint on um, to the point where we recognized we needed to elevate not only because he deserved it, but it was the right move to, for Marcus to oversee asset management, the assets themselves. I mean, we have a 12 person company and you know $800 million of capitalization. Mike has a lot on his plate from just company operations, from tax returns and, and investor relations and all that. So it was just kind of a matter of, okay, as you scale a company, you realize the roles that need to be filled and, and, and try to get people in the right place. So and Mike's, you know, the way his mind works, he's very ops oriented and very detailed. So he's the Great. perfect guy to run that. Sean, who joined um, from um, HFF, I mean, Sean ran investment sales for HFF alongside Marty O'Connell and Matt Lawton for like 15 years, right? So he's sold billions of dollars of deals in Chicago. Um, great person to join because I think he wanted to get on the principal side of, of, of the business for his last you know, phase of his career. Uh, he's from Iowa originally, he opened up our Des Moines office. So he was a perfect addition. And you know, Sean and I overlap in a lot of ways. We both have good kind of capital relationships and you know underwriting and investment um you know skill set but you know we've got a lot of right. a lot of units a lot of deals we're on right so it's it's good to have him uh you know help steer the ship as well right and then once sean joined then you could move more to like let's say like ceo type stuff now not so much maybe yeah we don't really use c titles i mean right. we're the three partners and we all there's a lot of responsibilities and we kind of each take our our responsibility but um, you know, I, I will think I do think that I probably think strategy a little bit more, um, you know, than the others, because, again, I want to make sure we're always kind of, you know, the front edge of the curve on an investment trend and not thinking, you know, reactively. Yeah, makes and, a lot of sense. And I'm able to kind of go up to 30 or 40,000 feet and think about that because we have such a good team put together to execute the business. Exactly. Where you have someone who's able to do the operations and then you brought on if you're a broker, I mean, you're. I'm just assuming your bread and butter is the deals. And then, so now you got someone who's that, who's an actual owner. That's right. And, you know, and so it's very seasoned. So that's, that's right. Yeah. Now, now you're yeah. freed up to, right, think about something at 30,000 feet instead of yeah. for the closing next week. Well, and, you know, you've got to get in front of existing capital partners. You've got to get in front of new capital partners. I mean, that involves travel. That involves a lot of conversations and, and really talking ideas and, and, you know, investment philosophies and that sort of thing. And, um, you know, that's the other thing we haven't really touched on yet, but, you know, to capitalize $800 million of real estate and we've, we've raised $200 million of, of equity and um, that's been a tall task. I mean, what I, people ask me how I've done it and I always say the hard way, you know, because I don't, it's, it hasn't been easy, but it's been, uh, we've got good partners that have come into each deal and we made the decision when we started the company that our value add was to go find a good deal and have the courage to put that deal under control, which means you're signing a contract, you're posting earnest money, you're spending real dollars, but that if it was truly a good deal, we'll find the right capital partner for that. And that's the direction we had to go because you can have all the good conversations with investors in the world and they might like, hey, Drew, I love you. But until there's a deal to focus on and talk about, there's really nothing to talk about. So, And today also, everyone's so busy that even if you have a deal that you could get under contract, they're these LPs. They're so busy that you got to have it under contract, really, to have like a to get their attention, real conversation. Right. They right. could give a quick look for ten minutes. Hey, if you get under contract, right. we would. This looks like something we do, right. but we didn't. 
we're not really looking too hard. You, right. This is a thing you might be one of 20 people. And my LP audience for a $5 million deal, which we're not doing small deals anymore, is completely different than a $50 million deal, right? So we, I needed to know what, what capital investment I was solving for. And you know, the, the deal dictates that. You know, where's the deal located? What's the equity check size? So you know, we'd go find good deals and then we would have sleepless nights until we found the right partner. But again, we've, we've found really good partners and, and really happy with the groups that have, have invested alongside us. We're hope, we're ha we hope that they're happy you know, with us as well um, and looking forward to you know, keeping, keeping the ship going. So then let's say, take me through raising the money on let's say your first larger deal where it went from, let's call it like a friends and family raise or just even from individuals to now you're dealing with a uh, one check LP or however that looked to family. Yeah, I, maybe I'll tell two examples because one, the first deal that really kind of got us started again, I was a one man band and found a $28 million deal that um, made a lot of sense. One of the individuals that invested in my small deals had expressed interest in kind of my new strategy or whatever. So I went down and met with him and, and kind of laid everything out. And I think it was a six and a half million dollar equity check that I needed. And I was feeling him out for like 10% of that. I, th I thought if you give me a 10% commitment, I think I can go raise the rest. And after you know half hour meeting turned into a two hour meeting, he said, okay, call me tomorrow, but I, I think I'm just gonna do it. And I sat there for a second and I said, awesome. And then I didn't realize what he was gonna do. I said, are you gonna do the 10% or are you gonna do the whole thing? He's like, I, I think I'll, I can do the whole thing. So I had to contain my excitement um, until I, you know, got into the elevator bank and started high-fiving random, random strangers on the street because that was what I needed to do to get the deal done. I knew once I had the equity, the debt was solved for and we could take this thing down. Um, so that, you know, that was kind of the first deal of size. And again, um, you know, effective networking and and I think presenting ideas and and you know that deal. Um, performed well. I wish it would have performed better. We, you know, we learned a lot on that first deal, but really got us going. And then, but, um, was that his first deal with you? It wasn't, that was, uh, we did some small deals here in Chicago, but this right. was the first deal that would have rolled into what became artisan. But then how for him normally he was putting in like a couple hundred thousand or what it was. Cause this was a surprise. Obviously, yeah. So. Uh, originally that was the case on, you know, the small deals we were buying here in Chicago. Right. Cause he's coming yeah. in kind of like a syndication. There's other people, there's slots, sort yeah. of, so to speak. Yeah. So you'd say I'm good yeah. for yeah. hundred or two or 300. Yeah. And then, then you meet with him on this and he likes the strategy and this. Yeah. So yeah. that's, and then they did the, then he uh, expanded it, the relationship to some of his partners and we ended up doing another six or 700 units. And that's when we started Artisan Capital Group and really were off the races. Mm -hmm. um, you know, since then, maybe another typical deal. Well, there is no typical deal, really. I mean, every deal is unique, right? In its own way. But, you know, I think more recently, we're looking at 40 to 50, $60 million total capitalizations. So my equity checks are 10 to 15, maybe $20 million. And, you know, we've been at this now for a while. We've got some good relationships. So you kind of start with your list of existing partners or groups that you've come really close with and you present the information. You kind of say here, we just went out on a deal today with kind of a new investment. You know, here, here's, here's the deal. Here's the snapshot. Here's, here's why we think it's a good deal. Here's the risks. Here's our underwriting. Um, here's the capital need. Here's the returns, you know, and um, we, again, we've got a couple partners that, you know, we'd like to do more business with. I think they'd like to do more business with us. It just becomes a matter of, you know, did they have capacity at the time? But you know, we're also always trying to talk to new partners. You know, I feel like we've gotten over the hump as a company. We're, you know, no longer a pure startup. Um, you know, we're 
in our sophomore or junior year, so to speak. We've got a good team on the play. We got business cards. We got office space. There you go. Um, and I, again, as investment tra- trends have, have changed, I think we're maybe viewed as a company that saw a, a strategy early on and went in and exploited it and, and executed. And that gets the attention of a lot of you know larger capital um, you know, check writers. Right. And we'd like to you know tap into some of that. But then, so then the first deal with like, with a, let's say, so that's an individual, then what was the first, because once you're jumping into these, like a $28 million deal, where, on, where the yeah. earnest money come from on that one? Well, I guess back up. you know, that one, the seller was somewhat unsophisticated. So I was able to control a $28 million deal with only $100,000 of earnest money. And that's not typical, but. And frankly, I probably had to sell some stock and like a hundred grand was always able to put together. But it was your money. It was my money. And, but I, I knew once I controlled the deal that gave me leverage and I was confident enough that I could spend $40,000 on due diligence. And, you know, if I had to walk at the end of DD and eat the 40 grand, I would have done that. But I felt I confident that I could raise the capital and, and we did. Yeah. So. And cause then the, obviously the earnest money at that point, that's non, that's refundable. It's refundable through thing. 30 days, but I knew that even after 30 days, there was going to be a lot of, you know, a lot of moving pieces and I still could stub my toe. So no, I, I you write that check, you know, hoping it comes back or hoping it gets, you know, contributed to the deal. But, you know, that's a risk as an entrepreneur that you've got to, you know, you got to ante up, you know, you got to get in the, in the batter's box. And, you know, it's been, I think maybe your next question is, as we've grown, how do you continue to, you know, capitalize earnest money? And, um, and not just earnest money. I mean, it's pursuit costs because we've had to walk from a couple deals for findings in due diligence that we could not, you know, we have a fiduciary responsibility to our capital partners to put them in good deals. And if you find something in due diligence, whether it's an environmental issue or God forbid COVID creeps in and, you know, you've got a deal that you're working on, a student housing deal that you don't want, you know, it doesn't make sense to buy in the light of, of COVID. You got to be prepared to walk. And that, that stings whenever you do that. We've only had to do that a couple of times, but you know, you can't be afraid to walk away from a little money because if you don't, the the, the alternative is a bigger mistake. Yeah, you know you're, I mean? you're working right. yourself for free. You put right. people in a bad deal. Right. It's really, it hurts your track right. record. But on the earnest money front, you know, able to cobble together enough you know, to personally fund some earnest money while we were growing. Um, you know, the partners of, of ours who would contribute. If it was a big deal, we would go to our um, our LP in some cases and kind of explain the situation. And, you know, oftentimes, not often, but in a handful of times, they helped fund some larger earnest money checks. And then, you know, what's kind of a trend right now or has been for a while is, you know, we're, we're the sponsor, we're good at hunting the deal, but there's a lot of good co-GP funds out there and investors that like to work with groups like us that understand that there's a capital need beyond what a typical operator might have for earnest money or, or that sort of thing. And, um, we've worked with some co-GPs that have funded earnest money to get us there as well. What's interesting you don't really think about is a lot of times, you know, uh, acquisitions are chunky, right? You might go through a few months where you don't buy anything, then all of a sudden you're awarded three deals. Right. So it's not just five or $600,000 for one deal. It's That could be two or three deals in a row or, you know, stacked on right. top of each other. So all of a sudden you need to have a million and a half, you know, you tack on some lender deposits and that sort of thing. I mean, it can be, um, you need a lot of liquidity for that. Yeah, so. I mean, even last month in total, we had about $2 million of deposits out. Two of those deals closed, so. Good for you, you got that money back. Almost, yeah. yeah, yeah, and then, but, and then we still have a million two out in one. Yeah. So that. And the other thing, I we should talk too, I'm curious if you've got a line of credit. We were able to um, work with a local bank in Iowa that we've done a lot with, and they understand our business model, and, and we can now draw on a line of credit for some of that. Um, what's, the, what's the collateral on that? 
my name okay and my partner's names no and i have not been able to do that one thing that's very interesting with how a a real estate business is set up for a second if we if the you know artisan or rise invest if it was all just in one let's say corporation or llc it would be much easier to make a loan like that but what's what maybe people don't realize every deal is in a separate llc so it kind of stands on its own as a business and then those all have you know loans on the property that are on that and then mm-hmm. you're not allowed to just put an additional loan or sign you know the whatever the equity shares on a different loan as collateral yeah. it's not allowed on your senior loan on the first on the loan on the property so it's a hard business to get a line of credit like that where if it was yeah. a different kind of business you would go okay we have all this income in one company and this would be the collateral and every year yeah. it's been like this this is really more just right a collection of yeah fees and promotes and different things or things you just own directly coming in and so that i'd be yeah curious i mean that's that's interesting and that's a bank where you've that wasn't your first loan with them no but we've done a lot with them and they have the majority of our deposits they've really become a pretty good resource for us but to your point you're absolutely right i mean every asset is a single purpose uh single asset llc or every property is owned by an spe and you know, that's done for a lot of different reasons from your capital side, your investor side, but also for the loan side, the agencies, Freddie Fannie or any lender really wants to just lend to a single entity. And liability too. Yeah, right, right. Um, so the value of your enterprise, I mean, Arson Capital Group, you know, you could argue doesn't have a ton of value, but you know, as we've grown I and mean, we have income, you know, fees from our asset management fees or, you know, uh, distributions from the property management company. So we, we I mean, there's a, there's, some fees or some income to model to say, okay, there is a hypothetical value to and Capital Group, which right. I firmly believe is just because of the platform we've created and the strategy that we've we've been able to execute and, and um, perform. So there's a value to our company. But at the end of the day, I mean, we're still signing personally on these things. So if, you know, if uh, we lose a hundred grand of earnest money for whatever reason, you know, we're not gonna let the, the bank write that off and we're gonna right. make, have to make it right. Right, but at least it's a funding source. Where it is, yeah. Be- Access to capital like that is huge. I mean, it's not a matter of, it's not a matter of whether you have net worth there. It's it's liquidity. You know, do you have the liquidity at the time? Right. Because yeah, even if you have a, on the deals where maybe you've been able to split earnest money with an LP or they contributed it, who if that got lost, like who's that on in terms of the repayment? You know, we we um, it's a discussion up front, right? And and we've been able to do it. Um, sometimes we'll say, look, we understand our deal investment deal isn't baked. So even though we're only going to be 10% of the, you know, the capital going in, maybe, maybe the liability is 50, 50. I don't know how other operators have done. I'd be actually be curious what other guys say, but other times we've been able to do it at our, um, investment ratio of 90, 10, you know, if, if our deals baked with that, that JV partner and we need hundred grand, you know, the liability is 10 to us, 90 to them because they understand the situation, right. but you know, I don't know that that's, I think that's the exception and not the rule. I think a lot of times is, hey guys, we need this money. It's protected. You know, we're not gonna let it go hard until everybody's on board and the deal's fully baked. We just, you know, we can contribute half. Can you guys contribute half? And that's kind of been the way it's gone. Yeah, and on stuff that I've saw other operators doing or things we've worked on, it really depends on how much information everybody has, where Mm -hmm. to your point, if if they're fully in the loop, yeah, they're probably fine splitting 50-50 or 90-10. But if yep. they were just a truly passive person who's this out of the yeah, mix. Yeah, you can't put that their yeah. money at risk without them being fully up to speed as to what's going on. Yeah, so then that's why there's not really like a set way. That's why if you were, you're right, whatever you've done or I've done, it's just been deal by deal. If that 
yeah. LP is as in the loop as we are, right? Maybe going 90, 10 on it yeah. makes sense. But if they don't, if they're just kind of totally out of it. Like I'll be, I'll put in this money if you need it early, but then if it's lost, we need to pay it all back. Yeah. And we've done it kind of every which way too. Yeah. So that's, um, we'll say for the, the majority of 2018, 19 and 20, I think whatever I would have had in a, you know, a IRA account or a brokerage account or investment account was sitting in a escrow account in, in earnest money. I mean, right. I just knew that to get the company going, you know, I had to sacrifice and it was, it was protected in most cases, but I just had to have that money be prepared to sit in right. earnest money accounts as opposed to my right or working account. capital for the platform. Cause what people don't realize too, you see what's they'd ask, what's your co-investment in this deal? And you're also investing some money, but what's interesting is, well, I have 200,000 of earnest money out. And then we had to make a $75,000 loan deposit. And we've, we've racked up 40,000 of other bills. Yep. All those last two, even if we cancel, then I just lose 115,000 or whatever that added up to it. Mm -hmm. And that's, I'm out. And then also you have a platform. And if there's 12 people working there, I mean, that's, you know, over, uh, you know, I can just do the math in my head, you yeah. know, 100,000 plus a month of just money being spent on something. And then, um, you know, that's, if there's, that sounds, great when there's fees rolling in and deals are selling, but it's not a guarantee that there's a, you know, yeah. a, a deal tomorrow. And then it also it's tough for our businesses. You've got to be making the right decisions for the investors. So if there's a thing like COVID yeah. hits, the best thing you can do is be canceling deals, but you're still paying for everybody. And now you're losing all this pursuit money. Yeah. I mean, that's the cost of doing business, right? I mean, that's, you know, um, if you have bad luck like that and a string of those, um, you know, you might, not be in business, but you know, you just got to underwrite a deal or two a year for whatever reason, you're going to have some pursuit cost, um, and hope you win more than you lose. Right. But I think people don't really grasp that unless until you're like in the seat. Yeah. No, yeah. Cause I'm in that too. And it's where you could go, uh, you know, almost, why couldn't you throw more money in the deal? And it's like, well, we have millions of dollars earnest money out yeah. and we're paying for all these people. And you know, it's like, it's not as simple as like, cause yeah. I just, you just have this bucket of money with no, no, no expenses right. coming up or needs. Cause the worst thing you do is be like, cool, I'll put in whatever, all my money in this one deal. Then another deal rolls around and now what we don't, we can't pay for the employees or yeah, we talk, money. As we were growing and we're still growing, but we talk a lot with our investors about that is, you know, we want to create, it takes a lot of overhead to get the right people on the team and, you know, have them show up and, and be motivated every day. And we'd love to put more money into deals. And we're at a point where we are putting larger checks into deals, but we're putting every deal we invest in and it's meaningful for us, right? It's not a token amount, it's a meaningful check. But sometimes, I mean, especially as we've done larger deals, as a percentage of the overall equity, it might not look like a lot. And, and the part of the reason is to your point is we've got a lot of, of overhead to cover as a company. Um, and maybe that equation's different five years from now, we can put you know more percentage into the deals. But um, you know, we got a lot, a lot of mouths to feed and want to make sure that we're doing that because it is in the best service of the investment at the end of the day to have our team put together. Right. Yeah. That's not going to help any if we're running out of money on the right. operating company. That's right. What, what were you doing then for, for loan guarantees? Cause just to kind of yep. set the stage though, where yeah. to, I want to set it up though, where if you've haven't done one of these deals before, typically, and it's not always the case, but as like a general rule of thumb, most lenders want, a collective net worth on whoever's signing mm -hmm. on the guarantee, either whether it's recourse or you're signing non-recourse carve-outs to be equal to the loan amount. And then liquidity, you would know better as a lender, 10%, but yeah, 10% yeah. of the loan amount. 
and that's after the down payments contributed yeah. that that's remaining. But you know, so then, okay, some of these, I mean, your biggest deal probably could be what a $50 million plus loan. Like how is, yeah, a couple of things. One, those aren't hard and fast rules from the agencies. One of the lenders, can't remember if any of Freddie, is more fixated on the net worth requirement, and then the other is more fixated on the liquidity requirement. So oftentimes you're solving for different things. So, you know, we have bought a $50 million asset and we were able to demonstrate net worth less than 50 and still kind of check that box. It just kind of depends. Um, Most of the loans, though, they were agency. Fannie or Freddie? Or We've done, I think, two-thirds of our borrowing from Fannie or Freddie or HUD. We've got a fair amount of bank loans, and um, we've done a couple debt fund deals. To go just kind of one at a time then on the agencies then, did you feel like there was a number once you could clear this collectively? Yeah. A lot of it's collective, right? So I've got my partners. You know, anybody's going to sign the non-recourse carve-out guarantees. They look at them, you know, collectively, which helps kind of us achieve, you know, those, those thresholds. Um, we have been, you know, again, a couple of years ago, we were light, uh, we would lie, rely on a co-GP, you know, whether we were going to bring in a co-GP to help facilitate our, our funding requirement or not. Sometimes you have to bring it in because you don't have the balance sheet to, to satisfy the requirement. So then on those deals, the co-GP was also signing the non-recourse carve-outs. Yeah. And I don't think we've ever done it where an individual signs. There's usually an entity that the co-GP has to invest out of and their entity will sign. So it's not another warm body, but it's another entity that has some net worth and liquidity that's willing to sign those carve-outs. Right. Yeah, we've had to do that in a couple of deals where we have an investor who has a holding company he's bought these things through, mm-hmm. and is like his holding company like blows all of our net worths out of the water. Yeah. So then it's, we add that, but he's not on it personally, yeah. but it's, you know, it's, yeah. it's kind of humbling in a way where this, this little thing he set up is blowing everybody You'll away collectively, yeah. you know. But it's so the same thing with those companies. But then do you have a, a number then where once, let's say, like on an agency loan, you get above like 20 million or something, then it's sort of just, it's okay. And that would be yeah. up to like a... I think the agencies, and I don't know what the numbers are, and you know, we've done some fairly large agency loans, but after a certain number, they're not going to hold you to the specifically a net worth requirement. And I think they were going to give you a little bit on the liquidity requirement. Again, um, I used to be in that game and it's been a while, but I think there's some flexibility there, right? They understand the sponsor, um, the capabilities of the sponsor, their track record. Clearly you need the financial, you know, requirements to be generally in line, but you know, you don't get to 6,000 or almost 6,000 units and not know what you're doing. I think that's one of the, the boxes they look at as right. well. Yeah, and at this point too, where there's and there's waivers and where they yeah. they can get flexible. Yeah. But what about then on? Uh, so then, kind of same answer across all different Bank, lenders. Banks or? are a little different because you're signing personally, right? I mean, I'm not saying banks don't care, but if you're signing, if you're kissing the paper and you're you're signing personal recourse, you know they want to make sure that you're well collateralized. But at the end of the day, you know it's not just the asset that they're underwriting; they're underwriting you know all your personal assets as well. So. I don't. I don't think banks have the same you know threshold that they look for, um, and I we uh, the recent debt fund we did as well. They had a, a lower net worth requirement, um, but still had to show the liquidity. So yeah. I think it's a little bit. It kind of depends on your lender. Yeah, and where I haven't uh, one thing that's different with the debt funds is they have you know a compared to the banks or agency loans I've done, they have a set amount of liquidity and net worth you need to maintain. Yeah, I haven't seen company, that yeah. in any, in any. Uh, let's wait for this siren to go by. No problem. I haven't seen that in any, um, any of my agency loans or bank loans where they we need to maintain. Have you seen that in any of yours? I think or? there's one agency loan. I can't remember what triggered it, but there's a there is a covenant. Um, it's an annual reporting type thing. 
Oh, okay. Um, yeah, I I don't have a HUD loan, so maybe it's that one then. But I've uh, not. I can't. I, I you know I'd have to go back. And I guess not here too. nor there. But that was we we're doing our first debt fund loan right now, and that's there's a liquidity and net worth covenant we need to stay above, sure. which is new. Where everything else has been just you get approved at a point in time, it's, and you don't yeah. need to maintain a certain liquidity, which now is a whole nother thing to think about where yeah. now not only do you need to front all the deposits and everything and pay all these pursuit costs and run the company, but you also need to yeah. have a certain amount of liquid, yeah. you know? So now it's just, there's, there's a lot more going on than people realize when they're like, well, you can't put in the full 10% yourself. That's right. You know, it's like, well, right. I got, that's right. Yeah. A lot of it, a lot of variables there. Yeah. So it's not as simple and yeah, it's interesting where, uh, two were right. And so when you, cause when you said you've done this the hard way, what you meant is it's been deal by deal. Yeah. And then, yeah. I mean, I don't have the, um, you know, I don't come from a very wealthy family and, and have like, uh, you know, money accessible to, you know, a lot of, a lot of cash. You've got to, you got to go find it. And, and like I said, every deal, the profile, of the deal location, the risk, you know, threshold, the asset quality kind of takes you to different investor types. So our, again, our whole thesis is to go find a good deal and then, you know, use our relationships and our network to go find the right partner. Yeah. And it's interesting, but it, but it does create some sleepless nights. And that's also why I say I did the hard ways you type a deal and, you know, until you know, you have a partner, you know, you're kind of sweating bullets every, every day. Are, are the deals you're bidding on today? I'm sure it wasn't like this at the start. Are you guys having to go non-refundable with your earnest money? Day We've one? done that. It's a good question. Um, we did that end of last year on a deal we bid on a deal recently that we're, we offered it uh, we bid on another deal recently that we did not offer it just because that was a tighter deal and more moving pieces you know in my 20-year career we've talked there's been a lot of talk about it there was a lot of talk about it in 2006 7 in early 8 before the market changed and now you know last 18 months has been another environment where you've kind of had to offer it up to to compete which is again scary scary times right but, uh, and the deals I'm looking at, that's required essentially. Yeah. So then what, what are you guys doing? If you have to do that or anything that comes to mind, where you are trying to reduce the, the, the risk on that? Uh, have a lot of lend, lender conversations up front to really feel like, you know, where your, your debt's going to be at the end of the day, um, which is tricky in a market like we're in today. And March of 2022, where treasuries have blown out 40 basis points in right. 30 days. And, um, you know, the bond, corporate bond market is, is wonky. So, you know, life company spreads are out. So, you know, you just got to feel good about the capital markets. And, you know, we were in a pretty good run there for two years with the treasury at historic lows that, you know, you were going to get 10 year money for 3%. Um, it's not there right now. So you've got to, you know, you, you got to feel good if you're putting non-refundable money out there that the loan that you think you're going to get is, is there. So I'd say that's the big one. The other is you got to feel really good about the, the physical condition of the asset, right? You know, you usually get environmental and you know, title survey carve outs to those non-refundable uh, deposits. But, you know, you've got to know what you're walking into on the physical side. Make sure that your budget and your underwriting contemplates some some capital for surprises. And then the other component is you got to make sure you've got your equity and can fund that part, too. So um, there's a lot to be nervous about, but the same token, yeah, I, there's two deals last year that I wish we would have bought and we didn't get them because we didn't put some non-refundable out there. And hindsight is what it is. I wish we would have put a token amount out there and, and won those deals. But you live and you learn. 
Right. And something not everyone might realize, you don't need to have the whole amount go non-refundable. No. Depending on the market. I mean, in yeah. these deals in Phoenix, we we did. It was okay. the whole that thing. Yeah. Yeah. Non-refundable day one. And then on one of the deals, there's no carve-outs for anything. Not even really? total survey, environmental, nothing. So on that, what we've done, all the same stuff you're talking about, equity lined up ahead of time, debt figured out. Yeah. And then also we're, we, we, we would only do that if, I guess I'll back up, if we have received a clean tile report of whenever they bought it. Sure. Uh, their survey, which would also have no problems. And then hopefully their phase one. And we're running our own environmental records. Search, yeah, whatever yeah, the, the desktop review or there's a the whatever website like Chase Bank and these play uh, Freddie mm-hmm. inspections, they just run this environmental record search. I forgot mm-hmm. the website, but we made an account yeah. and then we just it's like five hundred dollars and you get the whole yeah. record search. If all that stuff looks fine, then we'll do that. Yeah. And then we we try to then do the physical inspection while we're doing the, the purchase and sale contract. Yeah. Obviously. So then at that point you've kind of done everything. Um that would be a, a huge item. And then again, these deals were they're they're all value add. Yeah. So in, you know, pre, prior deals, it really mattered. What are the in-place rents doing your lease audit? Yeah. Today, if you're buying a deal and the rents are 25% below market and you're going to renovate it, like it's yeah. not your lease audit, you know, actually what we audited was that the unit mix was right. Okay. I personally sure. went yeah. you door sure. to door counting Make sure how many the, units there were on this right. one buying it's ninety six. I went to each one and counted it was. And then I was like, where where in this we because we didn't have like a like a map where yeah. each unit type is. And I was like, where are the one beds? And because then I wanna count those up now. And That's then smart. the yeah. rest and like so we confirmed the unit mix completely. Sure. Or actually I did. Yeah. You know, during the physical, no, that's all fine. the units were open. Yeah, make sure you know what you're buying because the in place rents it doesn't really matter on this deal. But you know, if we thought yeah. it was 82 bedrooms and it was actually 60 somehow, that would matter. That's a problem. So, yeah. we it's interesting what you're spending time on now. It's different, it's a different market, right? Yeah, interesting. Yeah, that well, yeah, no, that's I definitely took uh, took a lot away from this in terms of useful tips, even for me. So, I'm sure, people <laughs> are gonna find a lot of value in this. Well, I pre- oh, I I hope so. I mean, it's been um, it's been a good run. I feel you learn every day, right? I mean, you're, if you're not learning, then you know there's something wrong. But um, you know, a lot of hard work, and I feel like we're just getting started, though. Yeah. So great. Well, yeah. Let's leave it there, Ryan. So yeah, thanks for being on. Thanks, man. Appreciate it. It's good to see you. So how can let's say there's you know like a, a broker's got a hot deal or LP wants to get some money in a deal with you? How how do they get in touch with you? Uh, look us up on our website. Actually, we're just revamping our website right now. So artisancapitalgroup.com. And uh, we'd love to chat, whether it's um, you know about maybe doing a deal together or if someone has something to sell. Um, you know, the way we raise money is kind of changing. Obviously, we're always looking for good investment partners. So, um, yeah, just reach out to us through the website. My email's on there, and we'd love to chat. Great. Well, yeah, thanks again for being on, Ryan. Thanks, pal. Appreciate it. Great. Well, thanks for joining us, and we'll see you on the next episode. Thanks for joining us on the Rise and Invest podcast. Please be sure to hit that subscribe button on YouTube or wherever you enjoy your podcasts. If you'd like to dive even deeper into real estate investing, check out our company's website, riseinvest.com, where we have numerous free resources and information that can help both active and passive real estate investors. Our 100 plus page passive investing guidebook, our trends report, and our blog are all available on our website. If you are an accredited investor, you can get started today as a passive investor in our multifamily investment opportunities by hitting the invest now button on our website. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of Drew Brenneman and guests as of the date of recording and do not purport to reflect the views or opinions of Rise Invest Holdings LLC and its subsidiaries. 
The views and opinions are provided for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon or deemed as investment or tax advice or an offer to buy or sell securities. And the speaker cannot be held responsible for any direct or incidental loss incurred by applying any of the information offered.